Hi, and welcome to the Hingham Cast. I'm your host, Sally Donnelly. For the last 20 years, I've been a TV reporter for NECN and NBC Boston, but I'm telling stories in this new way here on Boston South Shore. The Hingham Cast is hyper local, looking at the pandemic, politics, and everything in between through the lens of one small town. But the issues we explore are faced by families across the country, like hunger and mental health. Paul Dean replaces a walkway outside his house. Rebuilding has become a way of life for the 62-year-old Weymouth man in more ways than one. He was in seventh grade when he started drinking with friends. By his 16th birthday, he was shooting heroin. It was no secret. I mean, it wasn't... um... The the facade was more that that I was uh, happy. Hmm. Everybody knew that I was an addict, and I hung around with all addicts, and we were around death from the beginning, from 10th grade. Hmm. Kids began to die from suicide, overdose, car wrecks due to you know the use and abuse, murder, um, eventually uh, AIDS. And really, it was, you know, people would say um you're so happy and inside i was uh i was full of dead men's bones i was anything but happy dean spent decades in and out of treatment using on and off his bottom was when his then wife died of an overdose in 2001 they had four boys between them i i drove my life into the ground mm-hmm. and sometimes i felt like humpty dumpty mm-hmm. that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Paul Dean back together again. He remembered hearing a woman talk at a Narcotics Anonymous meeting about a place she said changed her life. It was the New Directions Counseling Center at Interfaith Social Services in Quincy. He booked an appointment with the lead therapist, a woman from Hingham named Claire Hagen. You know, like at that point, I had no self-worth. And Mm. she helped helped me to see my self-worth. She helped me to see that I had value. Mm. I can't teach my kids self-worth and self-esteem if I don't have it. Yeah. Dean brought his young boys, who were reeling from the death of their mother, and they got counseling, too. What do you think it would have been for you and your boys had you not gotten to interfaith? Do you, do you imagine what that would have been? Uh, I, I couldn't imagine. Hmm. We wouldn't be where we are today. Wow. I don't believe that they would have the capacity to love hmm. and give to allow themselves to be loved that they have today if they hadn't spent time at, at Interfaith. Wow. To see it in my kids, that process beginning. In, in yeah. And when one of my boys uh, knows he's in a, a funky place, mm-hmm. uh, he'll say, I, I need to call in Interfaith. I need to see uh, the therapist that I was seeing. And she helped them now as a 27-year-old man, to get grounded again. So when I say it saved my life, it was more than just like my life, but it was my my life uh, all-encompassing, my kids, uh, our family. Mm. We live in such a broken world. Everyone is carrying so much pain. Mm. If we can't heal, you know, it's not just, it's not tolerate the pain. There has to be healing. There has to be peace. Because of the healing that we experience, the, our house is a home. Oh, Paul. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. It was a privilege. 
Let's take a quick break here. If you like the podcast, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and download wherever you listen. We also want to bring more people under the tent, so please share us with a friend. You can sign up for our once-a-week emails, letting you know when new episodes drop on our website, thehinghamcast.com. Okay, back to our conversation. Let me introduce my next guest, Rick Doan. He's the executive director of Interfaith, a place very near and dear to my heart. Hi, Rick. Hi. You heard Paul Dean talk about his struggle and how much the counseling centers meant to him and his family. How have you seen that need change during the pandemic? When I talk to our counseling coordinator, she's the one really on the front lines. She responds uh, children. Mm. Uh, She said that she's seeing more children that are having issues or parents that are struggling with balancing doing the at-home learning and working. and, Mm. And the other thing we're seeing is the pandemic has just been an intensifier. You know, somebody who might have had some depression or some anxiety before, it has all just been intensified by everything that's going on. Yeah, yeah. Interfaith packs a lot into that relatively small building. And one major piece is the food pantry. Tell me about that connection between food insecurity and mental health. The link between poverty and mental illness is strong, unfortunately. You know, there's people who grow up in poverty, people who grow up with food insecurity, people who are witnesses to violence, and it's a perpetuating cycle. And the idea of our mental health counseling center is not only to provide treatment for people who are suffering, but also to help people break cycles, to help people, um, you know, sort of escape those emotional and, and, and psychological barriers that are, that are holding them back. Mm. Um, and so we see that connection. We have cross referrals. We have people who will come into the counseling center and throughout counseling, we find out what's going on in their lives. And we're able to connect them with our food pantry. Yeah. Likewise, with the food pantry, somebody comes in looking for emergency food and they talking with one of our volunteers, sharing the struggles that they're going through, and we're able to link them together. Yeah. Um, so according to Feeding America, one in 11 people in Massachusetts, and that's one out of every 10 kids, struggles to get enough to eat. And the same organization projects that 42 million people, that's one in eight, including 13 million children, uh, may experience food insecurity in 2021. Talk to me about the pace of what's happened at, at the food pantry during the pandemic. I mean, you know, I remember talking to you early on and it was frenetic. It was, but it got worse. You know, honestly, those first couple months of the pandemic, one of our biggest challenges weren't the crowds of people coming out. We were seeing more people. The biggest challenge was food sourcing at that point. You know, you had the runs on the grocery stores and food wasn't as reliable. The biggest uptick that we saw was in was in the end of August, beginning of September. That's when we saw our numbers take a huge jump. You know, December of 2020, we served 50% more people than we did the previous December. Wow. We were, we were always distributing, you know, three, 4,000 bags of groceries a month. Now we're distributing upwards of 5,000 bags of groceries a month. And so we have seen that need grow. And at the same time, we, you know, we look at it and we say, it's not just about food. Hygiene is not a luxury. It is a right. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so we are distributing diapers. We're distributing pads and tampons. We're distributing toilet paper and shampoo and, and children's books to the children that we serve. So what's the pace now? What does it look like now? Right now, the food pantry is up and running. The line of cars is down the street. You have people lined up at the door who walk to access our services. It used to be that this was all behind closed doors. Mm. You know, people would come in to get food and they would wait in our waiting room and they'd leave. Now, when the community drives by our building, they have a visual representation of hunger in their community. Yeah. Yeah. How many families have you served this year so far? Oh, my goodness. Over 600,000 meals. How many families? Each month, we are serving about 3,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Paint me a picture for uh, people who haven't driven by or haven't been inside um, the food pantry. Paint me a picture of those faces. What, What does hunger look like as you see it right now on the South Shore? You know, hunger looks like any group setting. You go into any supermarket, any school, the, those are the people. The idea, you know, people have this, this idea about homelessness and hunger. And they, for some reason, they link those two things together. Mm-hmm. And so when they hear hunger, they think of somebody sleeping on a park bench. Mm-hmm. Now, in reality, that doesn't represent homelessness. That's not what homelessness looks like. And it's definitely not what hunger looks like. People in our community need help. We are registering about all of all the clients we serve. 30% of our clients are new every month, Mm. every week. These are people who have never had to reach out for help before. People who are struggling and are humble enough to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me what you hear from clients. You know, we'd ask people, we say, okay, you know, are you working? You know, what's your employment status? And it used to be, we kind of have a 50-50 split. You know, I'm working part-time, but I'm struggling to get more hours. Now, people coming in are unemployed. Mm -hmm. And the unemployment doesn't go far enough to help them. And so they need this kind of a safety net. They need this little bit of help so that they can pay their electric bill, so they can keep their homes heated in the winter, so that they don't aren't facing homelessness. You know, the number of people, the thing that we see, a lot of people are so far behind on their rent Mm. and it's disheartening because they come in, they're getting help from the food pantry, but we'll talk to them and they're $20,000 behind on their rent. No federal assistance is going to keep them in that housing. Mm. When the moratoriums are lifted, when the eviction goes through, that person's going to become homeless. I want to pause here and share ways to help Interfaith if you're so inclined. Book a facial at Tris Studio on the Square in April and they'll donate 10% of the price to the food pantry. They also have a collection box between Trist and AZ Studio if you want to bring food by. Different Girl Scout troops around town are hosting drives, so look out for their posts. And Sandcastle's Child Care Center is hosting a diaper drive. Federal assistance like SNAP or food stamps do not pay for diapers, so this is a big one. As for food donations, Interfaith would love kids' cereal. And it's okay to buy some junky ones. Kids in need like treats, too. Clients also need cooking oil, peanut butter and jelly, rice, spices, and diapers in sizes 5 and 6. And of course, cash is king. You can make a donation straight to Interfaith. 
Check out the Hingamanker. We've got a link to Interfaith there and a longer list of most needed items. That's hingamanker.com. Okay, back to our conversation. You know, Interfaith does extra types of things like school backpacks and Easter baskets. Um, Why do you do those things? It's the heart of who we are as an organization. It goes back to our founding. 1947, the South Shore was in crisis. The Hingham shipyards, the Quincy shipyards, you know, they were pumping out the warships for the for World War II. And then there wasn't the need that there was before. And the shipyards sta- started laying off thousands of people. And families were struggling, especially children. And so local churches and community members got together and said, we want to do something to help these children, to help these families. And that was the genesis of interfaith social services. Mm. You know, these children who are living in very difficult situations shouldn't have to miss out on the joys of childhood because of that. Yeah. And so the little bit that we can do, it's worth it for those kids. I want to tie that back into the counseling center, you know, because you said that your counselors are saying the biggest growth point they've seen is kids in need. What are you seeing in terms of the stress on a child for being either in a food insecure or financial insecure household? The stresses that are on a family, the financial stresses, they trickle down to the kids. The kids feel that, Mm. that emotional, that, that emotional drain, that concern. So a family who was already struggling to make ends meet had that. But at least kids had school and they can go to school and they can talk to their friends and have that social element. And then you take that away. And there's no respite from that, those concerns and those worries. Hmm. It is, you know, you talk about PTSD. PTSD is a feeling of never being able to get past trauma. It's something that that trauma hasn't become a memory. It is something that you're constantly living in that trauma. Mm. And that's what this pandemic has, has been. It's heartening that things are, are starting to get back to normal, but it's going to take a long time. And these traumatic ramifications are going to be there for a long time. Yeah. To help with that kind of trauma, Interfaith knew they needed to do more. So a few years ago, they rebranded their annual 5K from a general fundraiser to a fundraiser for the Counseling Center specifically. It's now called the Stop the Stigma 5K. Why did you call it that? I thought there's got to be something that we can do as an organization to raise awareness Mm -hmm. around mental illness, to break down stigmas. And that's when we decided to rebrand our event. This gives us a platform. It gives us an opportunity every year to talk about it on social media, to talk about it in press releases, to get our donors and supporters talking about it, to get people who have loved ones with mental illness or people who are in recovery from addictions. We're able to stand together and say, there is nothing wrong. This is not a character flaw. It is an illness and it is okay to talk about it. And the one of the best ways that you can heal is by knowing that we support you. Yeah, it's interesting. You've used the term mental illness um, repeatedly. And I think for 
some parents, they hear mental illness and they think, well, that, no, no, that's not, that's not what's happening with my child. My child's just, you know, stressed or has anxiety or, oh, geez, they, you know, they're starting to cut or, you know, binge and purge or those kinds of things. What do you say to families who have a need, but they, they just can't accept the term mental illness at this point? You know, if their child uh, broke their arm, they wouldn't hesitate to take them to an emergency room. Mm. If their child is exhibiting symptoms of mental illness or is struggling emotionally, they shouldn't hesitate to reach out for help for that either. It's not something that somebody just needs to suck it up and do better. That's not going to heal a broken arm and it's not going to heal anxiety. Mm. And so parents who uh, don't want to admit that, they need to humble themselves. They need to humble themselves. They need to love their child enough to say, I love you. Let's get the help for this. Mm. Because you see one of the biggest demographics, it's undiagnosed mental illness in teenagers. Mm. And that's why you see some where it's in their early, late teens and early 20s is when a lot of mental illness starts to really uh, sort of rear its ugly head for a lot of reasons. You know, there's big changes in life, people leaving home, but it would be better if there were warning signs to try to, to stave things off, to try to get somebody help early before something becomes debilitating. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you want to help the Counseling Center and do the 5K this year, it's virtual. So you can pick your own route, walk or run it. It's a great thing to do with family. My kids love feeling a part of this. It really is great. You sign up and your team gets pledges, but your registration fee alone pays for someone who can't afford the copay for a counseling session or doesn't have insurance to get the help they need for free. So right off the bat, when people register, they are helping local residents who are struggling with mental illness. That's great. What we hope is that so many people on the South Shore are registering that that week, they're out there walking and running and they're seeing other community members wearing that same Stop the Stigma t-shirt. And that's the idea, that sense of community that we're standing together. And that's the thing we miss the most, you know, being able to be at the start line and have hundreds of people together and have that visual. Um, we can't have it this year physically, but we're looking forward to next year. And at least we have a website where people can keep track of times and we're going to post who had the best times and, you know, trying to make this a fun, interactive event even though people need to do it in their own neighborhoods. All right. Rick Doan, Executive Director of Interface Social Services, I thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for everything you do to support Interface. I want to thank my podcasting partner, the ridiculously talented and all-around good human Kristen Keith. Our website was designed by Donna Mavramatis and her team at Mavro Creative. And Ellie Forbasano from Boston College is our hardworking intern. I'm Ellie Donnelly. Talk to you soon. Bye.